The kitchen crew rose before dawn. Yawns, groans, cutting through the darkness in the dorm rooms down on E-deck. White walls, white beds stacked. Better than other ships had been, but tight still. Spaces between faces so small. The beds made a creaking noise as some men rose. Some turned over for a few more precious moments of sleep. Perhaps a few stewards who wouldn't be needed just yet. After donning their white uniforms, they made their way down the Scotland Road corridor to the galley, which became bustling very quickly. Cooks preparing breakfast, sleepy sauciers already starting the gravies for the evening meal in first class. Some of these French dishes required such attention that these men would need all day to build the flavors. 60 cooks and assistants, plus a support staff of 36, dancing this delicate dance with pans and pots and food practically flying, working under head chef Charles Proctor, whose salary was second on board only to Captain Smith's. Everyone had an insanely specific job to do. Soup cooks, roast cooks, vegetable cooks, pastry chefs, a kosher cook. One kink in the system and it could just break down this intricate system of presenting thousands of meals per day on open water, previously unprecedented storage capacities and technology allowed for the keeping of perishables in their own refrigerators, eggs on their own, fish in theirs, 800 bundles of asparagus in their very own spot, 1,200 quarts of raw oysters, Henry Wilson and company of Liverpool had received a special commission from Harland and Wolfe to create the electrical cooking ranges on board. Heat, buzzing, bubbling everywhere. By 7 a.m., the earliest risers in first class would expect their tea service. Scones, fresh jams, coffee, a newspaper. And at 8, the call of the breakfast bugle. It should be stated that the most energy was exerted on service for the first class, hands down. And on that Sunday, April 14th, 1912, they would have dressed for Sunday services, men in blazers or light tweed or flannel suits with matching vests, women in pale colored wool skirts, matching jackets as well, high necked lace blouses and they would have added hat and gloves for church. And as passengers from all classes attended church that morning, work went on in the kitchens, a separate one for third class to note. So many working to feed this floating city, the chef moving from one spot to another, steam in his face, already checking up on dishes that they would plate that night for the very last dinner on the Titanic. I'm L.A. Beatles, and welcome back to Unsinkable, the Titanic podcast. This is episode three, Unsinkable Dining and Drinking, with special guest, Veronica Hinky.
So this episode will be a little different. I'm really excited to share my first interview for the pod with you. The other day, I spoke with Veronica Hinky, who is a food writer and a journalist, and she has this fantastic book called The Last Night on the Titanic, Unsinkable Dining, Drinking, and Style. We talked about everything from a Wisconsin popcorn vendor who was on board to Edwardian cocktails. Okay, <laughs> a lot about Edwardian cocktails. And I want to get you to that conversation, obviously, but first I thought I'd lay out some basics of how the food and drink systems on Titanic actually worked, and a little about the Edwardian era customs in general. And then I'm going to end the episode with something fun or strange or both, which is I'm going to actually make one of the cocktails that Veronica and I talk about in the interview in my kitchen probably with terrible audio because I honestly have no capacity for recording in that kind of setting yet, but humor me. (laughs) I wanted to experiment with an episode that's more multifaceted. So here we go. So it's 1912. This is the Edwardian era. Well, the tail end of it. King Edward VII had actually died two years prior, but a lot of historians extend the parameters of this era until the start of World War I, which of course then just changes everything about society in Europe and America. But the main thing you need to know here is that King Edward's reign represented a shift from a more puritanical Victorian era a shift into a less inhibited style. Edward was this big, exuberant fellow who dressed well, ate very well, like three meat dishes presented on silver trays before 10 a.m. kind of well, kept a mistress, lived lavishly, this more heading into modern kind of way, for better or worse. He hung out at the Savoy Hotel, whose dining room was actually the inspiration for the Veranda Cafe on Titanic, which was in first class, of course. And he hung out at the Ritz, whose restaurant also inspired an a la carte restaurant on board Titanic. The Edwardian elite were this confident upper class that believed in progress, at least on the surface. And they like to tease changing convention, but to be clear, they still never doubted what they perceived as some kind of God-given right to privilege and wealth and luxury, which is important to keep in mind because Titanic was this hulking, living microcosm of three levels of Edwardian society. In third class, you've got what really was the most crucial group on board, in terms of White Star Line's bottom line anyway, immigrants from Europe, Eastern Europe, Asia. And although their tickets cost significantly less than other classes, it was their business that transatlantic travel relied on. There were 706 third-class people on board, over twice as many as in first class. Many of them spoke little or no English, and they were not allowed in any second or first-class areas of the ship because of quarantine protocols and the fear of infectious disease. It's like I mentioned in the episode on the 1996 miniseries, if you listen to that, and I spoke about how... Jack Dawson would have never made it into first class for dinner or anything, but that's, you know, a topic for another day. So you hear the term steerage a lot, 
And that was more applicable on older ships or ships in other lines that weren't updated. This was when third class stayed in these open plan dorms and brought their own food for the whole voyage, which used to be the case. (laughs) But on Titanic, they were housed in private cabins. Accommodation for third class was still located in the least desirable parts of the ship, though, where passengers were subject to the noise and vibrations of the engines. These were on the lower decks at either end of the ship. Single men were housed in the bow, while single women and families were accommodated in the stern with families in the larger cabins. This was super intentional. There was this fear that rowdy single men would cause problems for women, children, families. So the cabins were spacious by the standards of the time, but often weirdly shaped and hard to move around in. They were paneled in white painted pine with salmon pink colored linoleum floors and furnished with plumbed in wash basins, which was a big deal in third class at the time mattresses, and white star bed linens for families and women. The exception was single men who were provided still with only straw-stuffed mattresses and a single blanket. So that's what Jack Dawson would have slept on. I would like to cut in here and say that this summer, my family and I, we went to the Titanic Museum attraction in Pigeon Forge. There are two of them. We went to the one in Pigeon Forge And there's a replica room of a third-class cabin. And it was pretty incredible. You're just walking down a hallway, you look in, and an entire-to-scale reproduction of one of these little third-class cabins. And it just was very, it's a very surreal experience. So it's important to remember that even though these accommodations were better than they previously had been, they still were not anything compared to first and second class. But certainly nobody brought their own food anymore. The third class dining room was dead center on the ship and just two decks away from the first class one. Just these walls between them, feet probably at some points if we're just talking about wood and steel, but so many worlds and worlds apart. The third class saloon was actually two dining rooms, a midships on F deck, bisected by one of the watertight bulkheads, and it had white enameled walls with white star posters, bright side lights, linen tablecloths, and long tables, and it was waited on by stewards. Menus were printed on postcards, blue white star logo was printed on tissue-like napkins, dinner was, confusingly, <laughs> served at lunchtime. In third class, the midday meal was the largest. But on the walls hung a reminder of class distinction, coat hooks, because third class often kept their belongings with them at all times. Now in second class, this whole group of people that gets ignored in fictional depiction so much, and even in some academic works, but there were almost as many on board as first class, just under 300. So second class, their saloon was somewhat less opulent than first class, but still spacious and very nice, as nice as first class on some of the other ships at the time. Imagine long tables, swivel chairs, a room paneled with oak and early English style. It spanned the entire width of the ship, just like the first class dining room did, permitting all this natural light to permeate. 
The food, which came out of the same kitchen as first class, was a mix of English and American inspirations. Think plum pudding, but also ice cream, which was all the rage in America, and that has everything to do with refrigeration technologies, but I won't bore you with all that right now. The second class meant middle class. It was often people who had some level of financial comfort, of course, but felt a devotion to work, duty, God. There were missionaries traveling back home. There were teachers like Lawrence Beasley. Remember him? He's the one who tried to go back to Titanic in 1958 by sneaking on the film set. So a luncheon menu from April 12th, which we have survived in someone's pocket, I believe, includes, here we go, here's just a little sampling, pea soup, spaghetti au gratin, corned beef, vegetable dumplings, roast mutton, jacket potatoes, cold meats like ox tongue and sausage, pickles, salad, and then dessert, (laughs) tapioca pudding, apple tart, cheese, fruit, and coffee. And that was considered one step down from first class, obviously. So in first class, guys, there were only 325 of them on board, but the kitchen crew and the steward crew, and even to some extent, the captain and his crew, they were working for this group of people to impress them, to earn their praise. Remember Ismay from last episode? For those who accuse him of acting as a second captain aboard, this is where it all originates, this idea that the elite had to be impressed by Ismay. This was a ship full of celebrities at the time. Industrial titans, fashion designers, nobility, even one literal movie star. And that's Dorothy Gibson, by the way, who Veronica mentions here in a little bit. It would be like today if the Kardashians were somehow sailing on a new luxury liner along with the likes of Elon Musk or Bill Gates or maybe throw in a Martin Scorsese and a Beyonce and a Jay-Z. I don't know. I It's hard to think of the exact right examples, but I'm not kidding. This was a floating city of millionaires, some of whom, if you converted dollars from then to now, would be billionaires today. J.J. Astor would be worth $2 billion in today's money. So breakfast in Edwardian times was important, partly because of the exuberant example set by the king. In the mornings, he ate haddock, woodcock, chicken, sausages, cutlets. Baked apples, fruits, prunes, Quaker oats. And I mentioned in episode one, the heir to the Quaker oat fortune was actually on board Titanic. Hominy, smoked salmon, herring, grilled mutton, bacon, ham, lamb, vegetables, stew, eggs, always, omelet, steaks. I mean, I'll just stop so that I save some time. But this is what was customary in this upper crust Edwardian society for breakfast. From what I've read, though, it's very doubtful that the average first-class passenger on board Titanic would be eating a meal this large. This was definitely more representative of excess than than what was typical. Um, Dinner in first class was an event, and this was a fairly new development for women. Prior to the 1880s, dining out away from the home was for men at their steakhouses, at their clubs, or for working class people who went to food carts and public houses. But for the elite women dining in public space at all, where they could be observed by anyone, this came with the influx of restaurant dining in the 1880s and 1890s. 
To cater to this new need, luxury hotels like the Savoy, the Ritz, the Cecil, Claridge's, they turned their dining rooms in London into these chic restaurants. And in America, the same thing happened with J.J. Astor's hotels. And we'll talk about that in the conversation with Veronica. The Knickerbocker, the St. Regis, eventually the famed Waldorf Astoria. And it's all connected because the White Star Line, they then wanted to evoke that feeling. They wanted dining on their ship to be like dining at one of these hotels. On Titanic, the dinner bugle was at six. Women disappeared to be literally put into their latest Parisian purchases by their personal maids and stewards. Most still wore corsets at the time. And these frocks had elaborate fastening systems as a woman often could not undress herself if she tried. So one of my main sources for this episode was is this book called The Last Dinner on the Titanic that was published in the 90s. And it's very much considered the core text for people who do recreation dinners of the meals on board Titanic. And it was a big deal when it came out in the 90s because no one had ever put all of this information and research about the food and menus kind of in one central place. So I'd love to read an excerpt from it. And just to note, the book is by Rick Archbold. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. And Dana McCauley. And it also does have a foreword by Walter Lord. And I just want to read a passage about what it would have been like for first class passengers to arrive in that first class dining saloon. Located on the saloon deck and occupying the entire width of the vessel, the first class dining saloon was not only by far the largest room afloat, according to an issue of the Shipbuilder magazine in 1911, it was surely one of the most splendid. After descending the forward grand staircase, one entered the saloon through the spacious reception room, and if the doors to the dining room had not yet been opened, one would have paused to admire the specially commissioned Abusan tapestry depicting a medieval hunting scene while listening to the soft strains of the Titanic's orchestra gathered around the grand piano. Upon entering the, the dining saloon itself, the impression would have been one of openness. The room was 92 feet wide by 114 feet long, and the walls and ceiling had been painted white. Yet thanks to the unusually intimate seating, Tables were for two, four, six, and eight. The warm oak furniture, the partitions breaking up the room into alcoves, and the bay windows with leaded glass. There would also have been a pleasant sense of coziness. All right, and at this point, I would also like to read you the 11-course menu that First Class ate on the last night of the Titanic, April 14th, 1912, Veronica and I, in our conversation, will talk about some of the implications of this, but just wanted you to hear it. And for the record, I am summarizing what some of these dishes are. Many of them are in French. I am not going to butcher the French language and insult anybody, so I'm not going to attempt it. So I'm just going to sort of summarize what each course is based on what it sounds like. First course, canapes, oysters. Second course, cream of barley soup or a broth. Third course, poached salmon with a mousseline sauce. I'll try that one. Fourth course, filet mignon or chicken lyonnaise or a vegetable marrow farsi. Fifth course, lamb 
or roast duckling or roast sirloin with minted green peas, creamed carrots, boiled rice, some kind of new potatoes with a name I cannot pronounce. Sixth course, punch romaine. Seventh course, roasted squab on wilted cress. Eighth course, asparagus salad with champagne saffron vinaigrette. Sounds really good. Ninth course, pate. Tenth course, a Waldorf pudding, peaches and chartreuse jelly, or chocolate painted eclairs with French vanilla ice cream. And that ice cream was made on board, from what I understand. And eleventh course, assorted fresh fruits and cheeses, in case you needed more. And then after dinner, coffee and cigars. But it's also crucial to remember that it wasn't just about the food for first class. How dare we forget about the drinks? The drinks! Every single one of those courses had wine. Red, white, or sparkling. Cocktails before dinner. Nightcaps after dinner. 1,000 plus bottles of wine on board. 850 spirits bottles. 191 liquor cases. Two Oh, I'm sorry, 20,000 bottles of beer. 200,000 would be a different story. And some of these bottles have been recovered from the wreck site with liquid still in them. Titanic notoriously was not christened with champagne, a fact that has been the wind in the sail to many a conspiracy theory, but it had a lot on board. And add touted the availability of it in first class. Corks were found at the wreck as well. One bottle found in the sand was Brut Champagne from the east of France. Also found at the wreck site were bottles of Bordeaux, Burgundy, Fortified Wines, Grand Marnier. And one of my favorite sort of side stories about the history and the lore of Titanic are messages and bottles. I mean, this could be a whole episode. There have actually been quite a few instances where people claim to have found bottles washed up on shore that include messages from Titanic victims. As in, as the ship was sinking, people were writing messages, putting them in bottles, throwing them into the ocean. I did not have time for this episode to look into the validity of some of the claims. I know there was a very recent one, even from a few years ago. One of the major ones was from a person whose last name was Burke, uh, who was immigrating to the United States. And he was planning to join some sisters in Boston. Before he left for the ship, his mother apparently gave him a bottle of holy water for good luck. Unfortunately, that did not work. He did not survive. He and his cousin um, both went down with the ship. A year later, a man supposedly found a bottle washed up on the beach. It was the bottle from his mother at Dunkettle. The place was Dunkettle, not far from where the Burke family actually lived, which that's the part of the story that if true is crazy. And inside was a note that read, from Titanic, goodbye all, Burke of Glanmere Cork. And the note supposedly remained displayed in the Burke family home for nearly 100 years before being donated to a museum. And again, I want to look more into this. That's an amazing tale as an amazing line of research to follow follow the trail of these messages and bottles, see if they're real. For the record, I have my skepticism. I will read more. <laughs> I will do more. If anyone knows anything about this, please email me or message me. I would love to talk about it. And I, I vow to look into that more because I want to give you more of that story. 
So the first-class passengers could also dine in various other spaces. I've mentioned a couple, the veranda cafe with wicker furniture and a roof with a trellis and vines, airy, kind of like a cafe in Europe. Considerable attention actually went into creating this illusion of being in an open-air space. But just how much a space like that was used, we don't really know. Some reports seem to imply it was mostly used as a playroom for first-class children. There was also the Café Parisian, which was outside the Veranda Café. Similar sunroom-like feel with rattan seating. It was meant to evoke a sidewalk café in Paris, but with a view of the sea. And then there was the a la carte restaurant, managed by a man named Luigi Gatti, who had cut his teeth at the Ritz in London, and he staffed his own chefs. These people did not work for a white star line. That was a big deal. So there you could pick and choose from a menu from 8 a.m. to 11 p.m. daily. No menus survived from it, from Titanic, but Olympic menus from two years later include this light French fare, Parmesan crisps, salted almonds, olives, Florida sole, peas, apples and butter, foie gras, many things in pastry crusts, (laughs) cold buffet of salads, caviar, lobster. And it imitated the Ritz-Carlton restaurants that were on the Hamburg America line that had been very successful at the time and had created this culinary standard. A lot of Passengers on Titanic mistakenly referred to the a la carte restaurant as the Ritz because it was so very similar. So after dinner that Sunday, many visited the reception room for coffee like they usually did, where the orchestra played. In second class, there was a hymn sing in the saloon. And in third class, there was an impromptu party. But it ended at 10 p.m. when stewards enforced a curfew and turned out the lights. Literally. After 11 p.m., lounges were shut down and the ship would have been fairly quiet, except for the two smoking rooms, where drinking and card playing went on with night owls like Archibald Butt and William Carter, remember him, he was in the lifeboat with Ismay, and George Widener. To be clear, rich people didn't have a curfew. The poor people did. (laughs) And it's here that the story circles back to the crew. These hundreds of people, mostly men, save for what I could find, 23 female crew, started work at 6 a.m., and usually they were lucky to make it to those tiny dorm beds by midnight, so they were exhausted. Stewards, for example, when they weren't actually in the dining room, they would be assisting public room stewards, serving beef broth on deck, assisting with afternoon tea. They might fit in a quick nap, but that wasn't always likely. So they were up when the ship hit the iceberg. Baker Charles Burgess remembers prepping cornbread and scones just prior to midnight, remembers being called up to start preparing the boats, but amazingly also remembers going back down to the kitchen because he'd left butter heating on the stove and worried it would burn. This story gives me absolute chills. It's just another example of how even crew didn't necessarily think that things were so dire earlier in that evening. And it just, it transports me at least to the Titanic as this place, this huge place with so many nooks and crannies and stories in them. This man, the stove he worked, the butter he felt responsible before because that was his job. The kitchen staff sprang into action that night, all of them, many of them delivering bread and biscuits to boats 
That's the story of Charles Jochen. I think I'm pronouncing it correctly, J-O-U-G-H-I-N. If I'm not, I apologize. Correct me. Who you may know in the lore as this baker who supposedly survived in the frigid waters for hours because he'd fortified himself with whiskey. Though, to note, he later apparently told his family it was schnapps instead. (laughs) From accounts of the night, he felt responsible for the stash of biscuits known as bickies or hardtack in the lifeboats. Someone called for bread from the boats. He roused his staff a little past midnight. He also threw deck chairs down into the still water, hoping they'd offer support for some that ended up in it. And as the stern rose... In that final plunge, he climbed to the very top and rode the ship down. It's him on the stern with Jack and Rose in the 1997 film, in his Baker Whites, fearful looking. He claims, in real life, he claims his hair never even got wet that night, that he treaded water for two hours until an entree cook named Isaac Hiram Maynard recognized him and held onto his hands from the side of the overturned collapsible. In 2015, an actual intact cracker, one of these bickies, from a survival kit in a lifeboat, considered the world's most valuable biscuit, sold at auction for $20,000. There are so many stories. Albert Piercy, he managed the pantry in third class. He supposedly scooped up two babies, and Officer Murdoch ordered him into a boat. Paul Malge, I think I'm pronouncing that right, assistant to Pierre Rousseau, who was chef of the a la carte restaurant. Paul served as a witness in the British inquiry later. He said the chefs were not crew, as we talked about, and also not passengers, which created this odd scenario with the lifeboats, where... They weren't, they didn't belong anywhere, and most of them apparently clung together near their quarters on E-deck. News reports later claimed Titanic cooks, quote, drowned like rats. Paul and Russo got on a deck because they were in plain clothes at the time and looked like passengers. They were close to boat 13, and Paul actually jumped down into it, called for Russo, the chef, but Russo hesitated because he was larger in stature and didn't think he would make it. And he didn't. Didn't make it off the Titanic. There were even stories that surfaced that aren't even true in terms of this. Veronica writes about it in her book, and I'm sad we didn't get to this story when we spoke, so I'll share it here. There was a man named Walter Belford, a Scotsman living in New York, who worked at a Russian Jewish deli on the Upper West Side, And at age 86, answered Walter Lord's call in The Guardian for survivors in the 1950s when Walter Lord was researching. He said he'd been chief night baker, but no records survive of him. His story was very similar to Jockin's. And it took years for people to realize that Belford was some sort of imposter. He even made it into Walter Lord's book. He attended memorial services for of you know that that reunited survivors. One of my sources for this episode, the book I mentioned, The Last Dinner on the Titanic, it was published in the 90s, and he makes it in there as a real baker. All right, let's get to the interview now. And I did just want to say really quickly that I apologize if the audio is a little lacking in terms of the just the quality of the whole recording. This was my first time putting together an interview using my software for that and figuring out settings, microphones, best place in the house to record, just 
the technology is a little overwhelming for me. I'm a newbie to all of it. So uh, I, in the future, hope to keep improving the audio on these interviews. So please forgive if it's a little low. Hopefully you can just crank up the earbuds and then just forgive me when you hear my loud voice booming in. I'm so sorry. Please do forgive that. It'll get better. So Veronica Hinkie is a journalist from Wisconsin who has worked in public affairs. She has done culinary writing and worked with food history for years. She's traveled the world sampling foods and drink. And from the likes of her Instagram, which is the handle there is at food stringer, by the way, she's also an incredibly accomplished cook in her own right. Her food looks absolutely incredible. Recommend following her account. And her book is this multi-layered examination of the last night on the ship with stories all presented through the lens of food and drink. And it also has great recipes and we talk about some of them. So here we go. Please enjoy. Oh, and remember to stick around after the interview for the cocktail recipe that we speak of in the interview. I'm going to walk you through it and potentially also walk you through some follies I had in my kitchen trying to recreate some Titanic food as well. It'll be funny. (laughs) All right. Enjoy. First thing that I want to say is that my copy of your book, Uh, The Last Night on the Titanic, Unsinkable Drinking, Dining, and Style is in terrible condition already because I I have made a lot of the cocktails. It's got stains and little, you know, pages that are wet in places already all through the book. I have not ventured into the food yet, but my husband and I have had a wonderful time trying the cocktails. So I wanted to thank you for bringing that into our lives, the Edwardian era cocktails. It's been wonderful. I would like to just start with you know the basic question of how did you circle around to this topic? I know you wrote a piece for, was it Wine Enthusiast? Yeah. And it turned into this. So if you would kind of, you know, just give a little summary of, of how you came to the Titanic. Sure. Uh, and I'm so delighted to hear that you're enjoying the drinks, the cocktail recipes. And those cocktails are so special because they got lost in time with prohibition. They, they were very popular before prohibition and then that all changed. And so it's the things like this book, I hope help people learn more about those. I'm so happy to hear that you are experiencing that. I have always wanted to try to bring food and drink ideas and culture into people's lives in ways that, you know, they can, they can live a more um, engaged and, and um, happy life and experience things from history, like pre-prohibition cocktails and uh, share those things with their friends through dinner parties and so forth. So I've always had that interest and I I grew up with that in a very warm, um, a small but warm family that loved to entertain and all of our friends did too. I just think it's so important. I also grew up learning about the Titanic and I've really studied it my whole life. The first person that I knew about who had sailed on the Titanic is Popcorn Dan, we call yes. him. Yes. <laughs> yes. I read about him in your book. Absolutely. And I'm so happy to hear from you because it's podcasts like these that keep those stories going and fresh and more and more people will hear about 
the inspiring stories of people like Popcorn Dan. I first heard about him when I was a little girl growing up where he lived in central Wisconsin. I I connected with the story of the Titanic because of those stories. And I wanted to know more. And I think it's through people that we really connect with stories. And that's why so many of the stories in my book are about the people, like Margaret Brown, John Jacob Astor IV, uh, because I think that's how we start to feel part of the story if we know the story of the people involved. And in my case, it was a, a popcorn vendor. You know, I've, I've always written about food for as long as I can remember. And so um, I wanted to tell a story as we were approaching the centennial, the 100th anniversary of the disaster. I wanted to do something really special. I, you know, was writing a lot more than I do now about food. And it was an everyday part of my life as a journalist writing about food and wines and cocktails. And I thought, well, let's tell that story and tell about the people like Popcorn Dan, who were uh, people like he was the one of the first, basically a food truck vendor. Food truck owners, right? Yeah, he would. I like the part in your book where you sort of describe him you know, just going down the street with the horse-driven cart, right? Yes, I really, in you know, in researching and writing the book, I, I came to picture Dan with his lone white horse, you know, living his life every day and uh, living right there in, in downtown Merrill and being a real large personality. Everyone in town knew him. He, for a time, was a caretaker at the mansion in town that some people believed was haunted and connected to the Titanic. So there was a lot of folklore there. Wow. Um, I would be very interested in that. And, you know, I'll cut in really quickly just to, since this is a great, this is something great to talk about that we are talking about. And how do you pronounce, it's Dan, how do you pronounce his last name? Coxon. And he was a passenger sadly lost on the Titanic. Just wanted to kind of, you know, jump in and say that there. So yeah, let's, while we're at it, let's talk a little bit about him because I, I think it's amazing how your project was sort of inspired by him. And one of the things I want to do with this podcast is highlight some of the lesser known stories. First, second and third class. I think in a lot of the scholarship, there have been, there's been an absence of the third and the second class, sadly. And so a real, a real aim of this podcast is to get down to some of these stories that we haven't heard. So yeah, let's talk a little bit about Dan, if you want to give maybe his kind of basic story. Definitely. One of my favorite stories about Dan was the fact that a few days before Thanksgiving in 1911, which would have been about you know five or six months before the Titanic sank, he went out shopping for what was going to be his big trip home to London where he grew up. And he went out and bought items to travel with. Like we do today, only his things that he purchased were much more expensive for him at the time and a little more formal. He bought a fur coat things that he wanted to make sure he was traveling in, in good fashion at the time. And I love that story uh, because it, it really reinforces how people used to dress up when they traveled. Things are so different now in so many ways. And that's one of them. And even in third class, he wanted to look really nice for his family. And, you know, like we do today, only it's, it's a little more formal. So he went out and he purchased a suit and 
coat and so forth. And he went to London and arrived right before Christmas. One of my favorite parts of researching the book was reading letters, letters from people about the foods they ate. Dan wrote a really amazing letter to his friend letting him know when he would arrive in New York City, coming back on the Titanic. Booked his travel. He had been there visiting his family because he he grew up in London. Some people have heard that he was researching to figure out how to purchase uh, theater, usher costumes. And I included that because it really, I think, emphasizes the differences of the times. People in in theaters in those days, staff wore uniforms it was such an unknown frontier of having a a cinema or a theater in your small town that he had to do a lot of research to figure out how to, how to arrange for all that. Um, So had he survived, he might've started the first theater in central Wisconsin, but the letter that he wrote, I was so delighted when I found it, it was written to who someone who became a very famous journalist a Walter Cronkite of his day, H.V. Colton It turns out they had been friends in Merrill. I, I had known that H.V. had gone to school in Merrill, but to discover that they were such good friends that he would write to H.V. and tell him he was coming back on the Titanic and could he meet him at what is now the area where Chelsea Piers is now in, in New York City. Could he meet him at the pier and, and help him get over to Brooklyn where H.V. lived? It was just amazing. The way I found the letter is because it was printed the day after HV received it. It was printed in the Brooklyn Daily Eagle because HV was the dramatics editor of the Brooklyn Daily Eagle at the time. So I imagined him opening this letter from someone who had been on the Titanic. This was, he received it obviously after the Titanic sunk and he knew what the significance of this was him receiving a letter from someone who they still didn't know at that point if Dan had uh, survived or not. And even though HV became very famous at the time, you know, Dan Coxon was not someone that would have been well known necessarily, but his name was in the paper when this newspaper, the Brooklyn Daily Eagle ran the letter. Uh, it was just really neat to discover that and find out what good friends they were. And I can only imagine them in New York city. If the Titanic had made it there, they would have gone out for drinks. And- mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Yeah. What, 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 this is a great segue into what I wanted to ask next. And everything you said was because to me, what I'd love to do, give the listeners a sense of too, is just Edwardian era. We've seen the movies, we've seen the depictions, but when you mention specific drinks, specific situations, like you say, like these two friends headed out to a drink and a drink that never happened, sadly. So number one, what drink do you think that they would have had at that moment in time in 1912 in New York City? Any cocktails in your book that are reminiscent of what you think that moment would have looked like? And then after that, I would love to just talk about first, second, third class. What did you know, in your mind, kind of everyday fare look like? Oh, great. You really get it. You know, where I'm going with that about the two of them in New York. And I think they would have been drinking things like the, the drinks that I've mentioned to you that I love so much, the Clover Club, which was very popular at the time at John Jacob Astor the Fourth's 
Hotel, uh, the Waldorf Astoria. It had been invented in Philadelphia, not too far ahead of when the Titanic sailed, and it was extremely popular. The Bronx cocktail was really popular, and it was um, an orange juice and gin-based drink. That yeah, was- we actually we actually just made that last night. No lie, <laughs> we my husband fell in love with it last night. I mean, we. You know, it was a weeknight too. We have kids that we had to get early to school. So it was, we called it research. It's hard work, but we have to do it. But yeah, we had, we had a couple of the Bronx cocktails last night. That's a really good one. And it really is research. You really have to experience these drinks to talk about them and mm-hmm, absolutely really grasp, you know, what was so special about them. The Bronx was a really neat cocktail and I for sure wanted to include it because it had a neat story attached to it. No one really knows where the name came from, but there's some, some people think that it was based on someone had gone to the Bronx Zoo and, you know, when they developed the recipe, they, how people can get, if they imbibe too much, they can get a little bit unruly like the animals, so to speak. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Um, So it's kind of, it's, that's one thing I've heard, but no one really knows for sure. I do remember researching about the Bronx and reading about how, you know, when it was, when the recipe was developed, they said, you're going to need to order a lot of oranges because this is a really great drink. And that's why I wanted to feature it because it includes oranges. Oranges were a luxury at the time. Like you wouldn't believe. I can even remember as a kid in the seventies, Oranges from Florida were a treat, and this was way before that. So I can only imagine how hard it would be to get oranges. So it was a really sophisticated drink for its time. I had a Robert Burns in in the spring of 2015. I drank a Robert Burns at the Waldorf Astoria, which is now wow. Cool. Yeah, it was so cool to be there, just to to be there in that space and. Um, it it was amazing. Right now it's closed because it closed a few years ago for renovations. And I don't know when it's going to reopen, but when I, I'll never forget my surprise when the bartender put down my drink, the Robert Burns with a cookie alongside of it. Oh yeah. That's the cookie one that we haven't had that one yet. Okay. Yeah. The cookie one, you know, I just had to include this drink in the book because First of all, the first violinist, Jock Hume, John Jock Hume, the first violinist on the Titanic who has an amazing story. He was from Dumfries, Scotland, which is where Robert Burns is from. And so there's that connection there, the poet Robert Burns. And many years before the Titanic, he was a a very well-known poet. And there's even a Robert Burns night when there's a special meal to honor him of neeps and tatties and cranishan for dessert and all these wonderful Scottish treats that were probably aboard the Titanic. So I always think of that and, and try to celebrate in January. This cocktail is purportedly named after him and it comes with this, you know, lovely little shortbread cookie to, to celebrate and honor Scotland um, so there were so many Scots that were on on board the ship, on board the Titanic, and one of them, of course, being Jock Hume, the first violinist. And so it was really important to me to include the Robert Burns because, you know, John Jacob Astor IV was one of the most incredible people 
seriously, who has ever lived. He, he did so many amazing things within the food and beverage industry alone that he, he just really was a, a magnificent person and he did not survive. He was a first class passenger. He did not survive, but the, the popularity of the Clover Club cocktail, the, the Robert Burns and other cocktails that are associated with the Waldorf Astoria that he established, he, he really has left his mark. And, and made a lot of influence, influential uh, contributions to food and beverage. And there's this great, one of my favorite pages in your book is this great description of the sabering of the champagne. This, so, you know, Astor, obviously owner of, and I think this was at the St. Regis, right? He owned many hotels. So the sabering is at the St. Regis. Is that correct? Yes. So yeah, this great image of John Jacob Astor, and he donned a Napoleon costume, right, to do this when he did this at the St. Regis. So talk about that a little bit. I really want listeners who've never heard this story to understand that image of him. Like, what is sabering of champagne? <laughs> but I don't think, I mean, I had never heard of it. So I, yeah, I think people would love that story. If you'd like to tell that, that'd be great. Oh, it's one of my favorite stories. And I love how John Jacob Astor IV who just valiantly helped woman after woman get into lifeboat after lifeboat and then faced his own demise in a, in a very brave and heroic way. Mm-hmm. And uh, he loved to dress up for parties and he would dress up in a, in a costume with a sword and he would open a bottle of champagne with a sword. And to this day, the St. Regis hotels around the world, which he started in New York city, the, the first St. Regis Hotel it's in, in New York City. Also the Knickerbocker he started. The St. Regis Hotels open a bottle of champagne every evening at 6 p.m. I believe it's 6. It might be 5, but I think it's pretty, pretty sure it's 6 p.m. in the lobby of the hotel. Yeah, so the sabering is you take a sword, right, and you just slice off the top of the champagne bottle. Is that right? Yeah, in just one full swoop, just one big whack with the sword, they know right where to hit it, and it takes That's the time. Scary to me. <laughs> yeah. And and what's what I really in researching for this episode and piecing things together, one thing that strikes me in terms of at least telling the first class story in terms of dining is that at this time in the Edwardian era hotels are really a very much a central part of this wealthy elite group's life, right? There's this, they're a leisure class. This is pre-World War One. There's this, this window of time where you've got this very wealthy leisure class that's transatlantic. And it seems to me like in terms of restaurants, dining, like you do a great point or a great job of pointing out the development of cocktails it seems to be centered around this hotel culture. Is that sort of what you found? It seems so central to this group of people. You really explain it well. And it was very elaborate and glamorous. And, you know, the leisure set, that's a really great word, The you know, the leisure set. And that's what they did. They worked very hard too, but they also uh, really uh, enjoyed life in other ways, entertaining others. Entertaining. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, entertaining. I had one of my book launch parties at Delmonico's, which was their 
in New York City uh, at the time the Titanic sailed. And Mark Twain had his, he had been a best man for one of the Titanic passengers. And he had his, one of his milestone birthdays at the Delmonico's. And wow. If you go back and look at the menus that were out at the time, there's, there's actually a really nice trove of menus from the New York public library. And you can, if you love this kind of topic, you can go and just devour those menus of all the different hotels at the time that had wow. that's um, meals. That's amazing. That's a good tip for listeners too. I know there's a lot of people out there that adore that kind of thing. I had no idea that existed. So that's really cool. One last thing I did want to cover sort of to that end is in talking about you know, the first class, we have these, we have these images in our head, like I mentioned of the movies, the 97 movie, you know, the one from the fifties, anything really, we have these images of the elaborate dining saloon. So what, I mean, these first class passengers were expected to sit down to these long meals with multiple courses. I've been going through some of these Edwardian era cookbooks. These dishes are wild. They're crazy, as you well know, and some of them are in your book. Yeah. What was it really like if you were a first-class woman, for example, wearing this tight corset and you sat down for this, how many courses was it? And what did they actually eat this food? Was there just an insurmountable amount of food waste? I mean, what, you know, what in your head did it really look like when you sat down to that sort of meal? 11 courses, you know, for that last dinner and very similar to other meals, you know, and I'm sure you bring up a good point. Food waste must have been just phenomenal. You know, the the whole uh, idea of having more than one meat entree where, you know, you can have salmon, chicken, that's kind of not really how we live today. We have, well, we're totally different now with our more of a fast food society, but it's very uncommon to have all these different options to have a palate cleanser course. Like you had mentioned to me that you, one of the things that interested you was the punch romaine. Yes, we tried it. We made it. It was, I, it was interesting to think of it as a palate cleanser because it does have a lot of flavor, but I guess with the ice, if we did the crushed ice, obviously, and everything, but so that, so some of these, some of these courses you're saying were meant to kind of come in and give you a minute to take a deep breath almost. Exactly. Yeah. And one of the stories I love is Elise Lurette from France was traveling with the Spencer family. And yes, they were related to Lady Diana, Princess Diana Spencer, Okay. Same Spencer family. She was a traveling companion to them. She was helping them get through these menus. And she even had crossed out a menu item. How do you make sense of it all, right? Every meal you have these incredible menus. She had crossed out Welsh rarebit. And Welsh rarebit is like a real cheesy, saucy, open-faced sandwich with heavy whipping cream and cheddar cheese. And it's it's just wonderful. But apparently she knew that the people that she was with wouldn't want that. So she wasn't going to steer them in that direction. So the other thing is that the dinners were very ceremonious. Sometimes the last dinner was really special because a family from Philadelphia wanted to host a, a dinner for Captain Smith. Special dinners were really common 
where that people would do things like that, like have a, just like we do now, a birthday dinner, a lot of conversations would be stent would stem from these dinners and they'd go on for hours. It's really interesting to study all that and get inspired. And, you know, so many people try to, to replicate that last dinner at home. Which is- mm-hmm. Yes. It's a, it's a whole phenomenon. I see there are even Instagram accounts. I've seen, I know some places in Florida um, and it probably is near where one of the museums or the museum attractions is. There's a, I mean, there's a whole business around this. It seems like now we're selling tickets to events like this. Do you, I mean, this is, I'm sorry to interrupt, but do you have an opinion about that? I mean, have you ever been to one of the recreation dinners and why do you think people are so obsessed with recreating this last meal? Oh, I just love it. And I know what you're, what you might be thinking when you ask that question, because some people might think, well, it's kind of morose to be celebrating this last meal. I'm not sure if that's where you were going or not. But. Well, I see. I I see both sides. I mean, I to be to be absolutely clear, I have definitely considered doing one myself. Would love to. Would love to go to one if it was. I'm in Austin, Texas, by the way. Would love to go to one if it was close. So I see both sides of it. But yeah, that's kind of what I was getting at. Is you know, is there a question of of whether it is a little bit morose for sure? Well, I've been to some, of course, and I've been in reenactments. And all I can say is that I've never felt like I've been honoring those amazing people more than okay. I've been with those people who have who honor the the passengers and crew in those ways. There's there was a really special party with foods, uh, not the full on dinner that year, but they had done it in previous years. But the year I was there um, at the Ringling Brothers Mansion in Baraboo, Wisconsin, people were dressed in full costume. They were so people are 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 playing, for lack of a better term, specific passengers on the Titanic. Yes, and like you know, Dorothy Gibson, someone was staying in character all night as Dorothy. Wow. That's Um, amazing. You learn about these people and you, and they should be learned about. They had a, an experience, you know, like no one else ever. And just to, they'll always be heroes, whether they survived or not. And uh, Dorothy Gibson, of course, was a very well-known actress at the time. They studied her character so much. This person, you know, made you think that you were right there with Dorothy Gibson. It was really neat. So when I, when I think of people doing reenactments and making these meals, there's nothing more therapeutic when you're trying to process some real shock or grief or kind of kind of that grief that we all carry with us for these people. One thing I've been doing is a separate from the Titanic, but I've been baking a cake that my grandmother made every month, a different cake. And oh, wow. through baking and cooking and entertaining, it really helps you process things. And I think I, you know, when I asked the question just to sort of as a, you know, entree into this conversation, but I, I definitely see that. Like I said, I've never been to one, but we, re- we recently went to one of the Titanic museums, the one in Pigeon Forge, because we were in Tennessee this summer. You know, I think that, you know, that's another example of something that can be viewed as cheesy or morose was the same situation once we were in there. It was just very clear that it was a chance to memorialize people that needed to be memorialized and that 
when you say these people's names and you tell their specific stories and the way you do it obviously is through food and drink that you are keeping them alive in a way. And the same with, you know, what you're saying with baking cakes. And I think we as people communicate through food. So it makes perfect sense that, I mean, everything you just said makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. And like we, how we acknowledge funerals as being for the living, right? So many of these memorials that people do nowadays with the Titanic experiences and all the different immersive things that are out there, you know, we're doing it for ourselves too. And we're, we're creating a community of people that are moved by the same things and are as passionate about these people and, and the story. I think the story really triggers a lot of things in people because it was sort of a time capsule of fashion, food, and other trends that the world has never known again. It was really the end of that almost like a caste system throughout the world at that time that we can't even relate to now that if you were, were a third class person, it was very unusual for you to be to ever move out of that at that time. I think that's why people love to study it. And then the organized fashion that people continue to study Titanic, because it is this, you know, these layers, the first, second, third class, although second class gets forgotten, unfortunately, I think a lot in these depictions, you know, especially in fictional depictions. But it is, it, it almost is a microcosm of the way the world was then. And you have those visible layers, first class, second class, third class. But I do think it's why people are compelled to study it because it is that last moment before World War One, before so many parts of the modernity of the 20th century really settled in. It is kind of a loss of innocence sort of feel. And I think that's why people romanticize it as well. I thought your book did a really good job of highlighting first, second, and third class passengers. And I... I did want to touch on third class a little bit. I think there is a, and you can correct me if you think I'm wrong, but I think there's a misconception about third class. Some accounts I've read or podcasts I've heard in the past that have done a Titanic episode have sort of intimated that conditions in third class were terrible, but they weren't, right? I mean, in comparison to life on other liners, the third class accommodations and the meals were actually quite good for the time. Is that correct? Exactly. Yes, that is spot on. Even third class people were experiencing a much higher level of, of an environment and service and food. Now, I will say one thing. I love to point out that juxtaposition that's so interesting that in third class, you would see a very different dinner menu, not much, not much of one at all at dinner time, but the big meal was at noontime and gruel was on one of the menus. Whereas you compare gruel to incredible yeah. feasts in first class. So just very, very distinct. You know, when you look at people these days who have incredible wealth and people who don't, they're really all eating very similar things in many ways, I would think than they were then. It was so very different then. Yes, the quality of food for the third class was better than they maybe had had in, on previous ships or in the past. But still, it's important to remember that it's a very, very different menu. And these class distinctions were, as you say, very, very obvious. All right. So I wanted to ask if myself, 
or any listener was thinking in terms of you know doing a recreation dinner and they wanted options for third and first class if they wanted to do both or they wanted to you know do the more non-traditional third class recreate recreation dinner do you have any suggestions for what some pretty easy doable items might be that would give a real sense of what you know life was like at the time oh i sure do and and this brings me to a really special story that I'll share. But first, I just want to point out that the big meal in in third class and steerage was breakfast. And so if I were going to do something thematic based on third class on the Titanic, I would have a breakfast. There was always ham with eggs, oatmeal, porridge, bread, butter, and marmalade. There were smoked earrings. So you could have a lot of fun with that. Biscuits. There was a Swedish bread. And jacket potatoes. Now, who would think of having baked potatoes for breakfast? But that is really a good peek at what life was like for third-class passengers at that time in the Edwardian years. And one of the really amazing menu items that I actually focused heavily on was tripe. And tripe, of course, is one of the stomach linings of a stomach of a cow. Tripe was very popular among people that would have been in third-class on the Titanic. I really had a lot of fun meeting new people in researching this book and compiling recipes. And I met a lot of friends that I've still kept in touch with. One of them is Sonia Geyer from Johannesburg, South Africa. I found her on Facebook because I was looking online for tripe recipes. I don't have any family tripe recipes. I can, I can get you a really good recipe for my grandma's pickled heart Dear heart, but I don't have any tripe recipes. (laughs) I reached out to Sonia. She was delighted to share her grandmother's tripe recipe. And it's in the book. And I, if you're daring enough to work with cow intestines and stomach, it's really a great recipe. I, I gave it a whirl and it was really neat. It's a, it's usually served with onions and it's just a terrific way to celebrate that, that era and that, class of passengers in that era. I know it's, you know, people take the preparation of it very seriously and that, you know, historically it's been a very important food. So yeah, that sounds great. And I, I had forgotten that, but yeah, your recipe is a, is a whole page in the book. Is that correct? You've got a very detailed outline for that. Yeah. And I, I also think it would be fun to do something with gruel if you were really going to take a, a deep look at what these people were eating gruel was on the menu. If you're going to go all in and, and do a you know recreation dinner, yeah, I think that's a great way to look at it. You really, at least I would like to get a true sense of what sitting down to a meal would be like. And the the baked potato thing is is interesting. I, I guess it probably had to do with just if you were more working class and you needed that much more kind of calorie and carb to fuel your day, you were doing more physical labor, probably especially for the men. So that's my first thought on that is maybe that has something to do with it. Yeah, that's really interesting. All right, perfect. And then what about for first class? What if someone wanted to tackle a couple of the first class recipes, but maybe wasn't the most accomplished home cook had rudimentary, you know, needed something that they could easily have an entree into on the doability level. What would be a couple that you would recommend someone start with? Well, there's something for everyone and anyone can do this. 
I love to put together an assortment of cheeses that were aboard the, on the first class lunch buffet every day. That really told, uh, by reading those menus, I learned these cheeses were really, you know, the fashionable cheeses of the day. You know, like we've, I, I remember when I first experienced drunken goat cheese years ago, it was almost became trendy. And these were kinds of the cheese trends of the day that showed up on that menu every day. And you can do an assortment of special cheeses and Stilton and other cheeses that are listed in the book. There's a whole list of them and you can make baked apples. They were on the breakfast menu in first class and they're so simple and they're a wonderful, um, anybody can make baked apples. You just core out a couple of apples, stuff them with brown sugar and raisins and bake them. And you can top them off with whipped cream. And what a simple way to have a thematic party, dinner party or something to an element of your dinner that's thematic uh, for your friends. You can do something with rhubarb. Rhubarb was on the menus. I thought that was really neat because I love rhubarb. Spring was right around the corner. It was April 15th, um, April 14th, when the Titanic struck the iceberg. So you see little hints of spring in the first class menus. So just in working with asparagus, English spring peas, a dinner of things like that, that you feel comfortable making. There's little things like that, that you can do. And then of course, oysters, there's, I'm really inspired lately that I learned about a new salon in New York city where a woman has people into her own home to have oysters, small groups of people that learn how to shuck oysters. And I always think what a great thematic, a Titanic thematic party or program that would be because she, she teaches you about oysters. They were very much on all the menus on the Titanic in first class. And it's called Regarding Oysters, and I follow her on Instagram, and it's really neat to see. Oh yeah, that's great, and yeah. and and it's I I I remember your section on oysters, and there were how I can't remember how many thousand pounds, but there were a lot of oysters on that ship when it sailed, right? Like that's <laughs> it was yeah, and I think you you got to the heart of something really important is that if you're wanting to create this experience to memorialize these people the spirit of it is probably the most important thing. So like you were saying, you know, have the cheese board going, have one of these great cocktails going that, you know, maybe if you don't have the skill to recreate some of these elaborate meat dishes, or you can't access all the ingredients of some of these elaborate dishes, that the spirit of it is almost more important than anything else. Exactly. And, you know, having everybody, each person bring a dish from the menu would be the for sure, the only way you'd want to try to tackle that menu because the first class dinner, the only other way I would think would be just if you were going to do it alone would be just painful. For oh gosh, I can't even. You wouldn't, you would need an industrial kitchen. I mean, you would need to have, you know, several meats going. You would probably need an outdoor grill going with things. You'd need you know, probably eight burners on a stove. So yeah, it sounds, I mean, and that's the thing too, is, you know, in reading your book and then some of the research that I've done, um, it really, it is amazing how many, you know, workers were on board this ship taking care of these people. And you do a great job of highlighting a couple of people that I don't think anybody else would 
ever have thought to mention like the kosher cook that's on board. They had kosher meals, right? And he he was on board and his sole job was to make sure that kosher meals were available. Right. All right. So one thing that I really would love to mention really quickly that as I was reading your book and also looking through some of the auction records of Titanic memorabilia that has been auctioned off over the years, there are menus that were in the pockets of people that survived, like Lytoler even, right? I believe these menus have sold for, I think one was $23,000 a few years back in an auction. So I would love to hear your opinion on that, on why you think these items mean so much. A menu from the pocket. What is, symbolically, what does that mean to us as a society? And why do you think someone would pay that much money to own something like that? Well, for one thing, thank goodness they did save those menus because they're really the a look at what these people were really about, what they were eating, what was life like back then, and what was it like on the Titanic. People who were traveling aboard the Titanic like Dan told his friend HV, I'm going to be traveling on the Titanic. They would announce that they knew they were on a really spectacular trip. This was a ship of a lifetime and they knew it. So that's why you see things like people tucking menus into their tuxedo jackets and saving them. I, I still have my menu from 1984, when I went to Paris for the first time, Air France gave out menus and coach. I still have that menu. People, people love this topic. They love menus. They love foods and they want to, to preserve that almost like a souvenir of their experience. Thank goodness they did. So we know so much about them and we wouldn't know things because, you know, they're like so many other things. Uh, about the Titanic, those records weren't, they're not widely available now. So I think- Oh, right. So we, we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have this information about some of these menus without those pocket menus is what you're saying. Yeah. We wouldn't okay. um, have this book for sure. And the letters about the food and so forth. So thank goodness that they're there. I think it's wonderful. I wish they, you know, I wish more would appear so we'd see more things. One of the letters that was auctioned was for the, excuse me, not letter, menu, was the crew menu. And that really was interesting because it featured plover, which is a seabird. That told us, told me that the person planning the lunch for the crew for the sea trials wanted to honor the crew that had you know, most of these people had dedicated their lives to the sea by having a seabird uh, for lunch. Things like that, that just tell us so much about life and life at that time and, and really reflect the, the journey. Yeah, it really is. It really is a moment in time. You said that and it clicked in my head, you know, a menu is a moment in time. And I hadn't really thought about it that way until you said it. So that's, it's a very meaningful way to think about it. And I think you're exactly right. I think people save those and put them in boxes because it, it takes you back to one very specific meal, which is, you know, as you were mentioning earlier, food is all about memory and grief, like you said, too. Well, this has been absolutely fantastic, Veronica, Veronica Hinky. I want to spotlight your book. 
I cannot stress enough how fun it has been to have in our house. Um, And I want to say the full title again. It's The Last Night on the Titanic, Unsinkable Drinking, Dining, and Style. And I would love to tell listeners uh, where they can contact you. And also I would love for you to, well, why don't you just tell them, tell them your email address, how they can, you know, reach you and then how they can get your book. Well, you can email me for a personalized copy. I would love to send you a personalized copy if you'd like a, a copy of the book. And my email address is info at veronicahinky.com. I-N-F-O for information. Info at veronicahinky.com. Now, you don't need to do that. You can order it through Amazon, through, I think it's still available through booksellers like Book, Barnes and Noble and Books a Million and others. But I really want to put that offer out there that if you would like a personalized copy, I'd be happy to send you a copy. Yeah, that's that's incredible. And like I mentioned at the beginning, I think I'm going to need another copy because mine is mine is a bit whiskey stained already. <laughs> But yeah, this has been incredible. Um, you know, the podcast is called Unthinkable. So I think it was meant to be for you to be my first guest. This has been just a perfect free-flowing conversation. I think we've gotten a chance to cover some of the personalities on the ship and also, you know, as we said, sort of few moments in time of what food, that food experience was for these people. So thank you so much. Uh, again, it's been wonderful. It has really been terrific talking with you and thank you so much for this last hour and for setting this up. And I do think that you need a new book. So one is going to be coming your way. I'm going <laughs> to you soon. Thank you. As promised, I am ending the episode in my kitchen, hopefully with not horrible audio. You may hear my refrigerator. You may hear my cat. You may hear, there she is. Her name is Minnie. You may hear the pitter patter of little feet upstairs. Hi, Minnie. She apparently wants to podcast. Also, my kids refuse to sleep, so you may hear their feet upstairs or their tiny voices. Okay. I'm going to make the Clover Club, which is the cocktail that Veronica and I discussed. It was very popular at 1912, would have been very popular on board Titanic, very popular at the Waldorf uh, JJ Astor's hotel that we spoke about. I want to just address one ingredient before I get started, which is a raw egg. And I had never worked with a raw egg in a cocktail before now. I'd been tempted to, always been a little frightened to. And from what I have garnered from some research online, I cannot, of course, promise that it's 100% risk-free to use a raw egg in your drink. Of course, consuming undercooked and raw food, there's always some amount of risk. But from my understanding, if you're using a high-quality egg, It's very safe in general, and I decided to finally do it for this set of 
Edwardian era cocktails. And I'm glad I did because it really makes a difference in a cocktail like this. It provides that frothy, gorgeous, kind of cold, frothy look and feel of a cocktail like this. So I highly recommend giving it a try with the high quality egg. So what you're going to need is the egg, cocktail shaker, doesn't have to be fancy, but a shaker does work best, gin, any brand that you've got on hand, lemon juice, fresh is always best. I happen to not have fresh tonight. I'm just going to use bottled and raspberry syrup, which I have heard from my friend Hank, shout out Hank, is best when you make it homemade. I have not done that yet. Want to try that soon. So I am going to assemble those ingredients. First thing is to crack this egg, separate it using the eggshell. Make sure no yolk gets in the shaker. That would be, to be honest, fairly disgusting. Okay. Now you're going to want to dry shake all of these ingredients before you put ice in. Don't get your ice out yet. It's what Veronica recommends. I recommend it. I've done this this way several times. It's great. So no ice yet. So you've got the egg in the shaker and next the gin. You're going to do one and a half ounces of gin. One and a half ounces of gin. Next, a half ounce of lemon juice. Get that in there. All right, lemon juice added. Next is a half ounce of the raspberry syrup. It's gonna give it a nice, like pale rose, rose pink kind of color to it, the raspberry, it's great. So in the shaker, no ice yet. We have the egg, the gin, the lemon juice, and the raspberry syrup, and dry shake that, get it, Kind of frothy, get that froth going. I don't understand completely, technically speaking, why this works so well, the dry shake, but it does. Okay, dry shaken, now ice. Lots of ice. All right, lots of good ice in there, and then the big shake. Key thing here is that it is best served strained, just like straight into the glasses. And I highly, highly, highly recommend coupe glasses. They are gorgeous for this type of cocktail. If you don't have them, obviously no problem. Any drinking vessel will work. A glass will work but it, it, the froth and the color and everything, it's so pretty in the coupe glass. So I'm going to strain this directly into the coupe glass. And you don't need any garnishes or anything. I mean, you can do one if you want, but nothing required. Look at that great, like I said, that great like light pink color. All right, there we go. Beautiful Clover Club cocktail. Sip it and just imagine you're sitting at the bar at the Waldorf Astoria in 1912 and maybe in that timeline the Titanic doesn't sink and JJ Astor is right there at the bar. Imagine. All right, you guys. Cheers. All right. Last thing is that I wanted to pop in here and say that 
I did recreate part of a third-class dinner menu for my family last night. It went okay. <laughs> I the For the main dish, I did a roasted pork. Uh, the recipe is in the last dinner on the Titanic book. It is a pork that was marinated overnight in sage and garlic and red wine and onion, and it was actually really, really good. My son said he doesn't like Titanic pork. He was the only dissenting voice. He now calls that Titanic pork. Maybe that'll be a thing in our lives. Everyone else really liked it. So I was happy with that. And as we spoke about in the interviews, some of these third-class recipes are a lot more accessible. They're just a lot more similar to things that we eat now, and the ingredients are easier to tackle. So that was great. I also, though, tried to make the biscuits, the cabin biscuits, which you hear the word biscuit and you think Southern flaky biscuit in America, but this is the more like hard cracker-like kind of biscuit. And the recipe even told me, hey, this is probably not going to taste great and maybe put throw some extra butter on there. <laughs> These are inedible. I don't, I think I did something wrong. I have no idea. Maybe my oven temperature was off. They imagine that they were supposed to be crispy. Mine turned out these like soggy little bendable pieces of dough, really bad. So I threw them out, unfortunately. That didn't work. So to be clear, I failed at even part of this attempt at a third-class recreation meal. As Veronica and I spoke about in the interview, there are people out there trying to replicate the first-class menu. I can't even imagine. So to end this entire episode, I have had so much fun with, by the way, and I hope you've enjoyed it. I wanted to share some suggestions for hosting from the last dinner on the Titanic book. This is not Veronica's. This is the one from the 90s. And I do have to say that this book seems to support whoever hosts a Titanic dinner seems to support them sort of dipping back into gender and class and caste systems of the time as well. So I'm just going to leave you with this. They suggest that if you want to host a true, authentic, titanic, first-class dinner party, here's what you need to do. Send out handwritten formal invitations weeks beforehand. Once guests have accepted, send them an envelope of info about what to wear and perhaps a biography of a character that they could play. You could even do fake cabin tickets filled out with names and servant info and luggage info. Set your tables with fresh flowers and bowls of fruit and place a folded white starline menu card at each place and a red carnation boutonniere for each gentleman. Play strains of gentle palm court music. The host should introduce gentlemen to the woman that he is to take down to dinner. <laughs> Announce dinner with the ringing of a gong, unless you actually have a bugle to play the roast beef of old England, which is what they played on board. Each course should be presented in a silver salver and passed around from guest to guest. If you have staff, Guys, if you have staff, my staff would be my five-year-old and my seven-year-old in little mini suits. If you have staff, make them make sure that they offer each dish to the left. And lastly, 
please make sure you have separate glasses for every wine. Red, white, sparkling, fresh glass every course. All right, you guys. If you are someone who hosts a Titanic recreation dinner, I'm intrigued. I I would honestly love to hear how it's going or how it's gone. Please let me know. Please invite me the next time that you do it. I will come. Not even kidding. I hope you've, like I said, I hope you've enjoyed it. Putting this this kind of episode together was a new experience. Like I said, I know the audio and the transitions aren't perfect, but I'm learning. Please email me. I've actually gotten a few emails, which is incredible. I love hearing from you. And if you don't mind, if you do email me, put a note in there that you don't mind it being read on the show and I can read some of these. It's great. So please email me unsinkablepod at gmail.com. Instagram handle is unsinkablepod. There seems to be a lot of activity growing there. People are following, interacting with me on posts. If you do Instagram, I highly recommend jumping on board there. It's really fun. In two weeks, I am going to do a little bit of a spooky season-themed episode on supernatural elements of the Titanic story and the story of premonitions involving Titanic. So we're going to take a look at some of the eerie parts of the lore for an October episode. So that's in two weeks. In one week... I will be continuing the film series that I'm doing, and I'll be covering the 1953 movie. And if you have a request for a movie or a documentary or a show for me to cover within that Titanic on film series, please let me know. I Just this morning, I got a great message on Instagram, someone asking me about a specific one to cover, and I am totally going to do it because I that's where I get ideas is from you and interacting and being able to connect with people that are listening. That's what all this is about. So would love that. Please contact me. Last thing is that if you do listen on Apple Podcasts and you're enjoying the pod, please consider rating and reviewing. That would be amazing. And that should do it. Thank you for listening. Thank you so much. Have a fantastic day. Cheers. See you next time.